Hello, greetings, thanks for your interest in spiritual matters, and thanks for joining us today. My name is Ethan Longhenry, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ, where disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Today we're going to talk about a character we mention frequently. We normally don't spend a time focusing just on him, and he goes by many names. The Devil, the Evil One, Mephistopheles, Beelzebub, many others. We call him Satan. The very name conjures up discomfort, fear, and hostility. We mention Satan, the picture that only comes to mind is some red, satyr, humanoid-type character with goat feet, horns, carrying a trident. In fact, few characters from Scripture prove as controversial as Satan. We really shouldn't be surprised at this. After all, he is a master deceiver, and the controversies around him suit him and his purposes very well. Many are convinced that he does not exist at all. They presume him to be a projection of those who feel guilt for doing things they want to do, or, or perhaps and, as a way of controlling the behavior of others. See, the Satan guy is going to get you if you don't watch out. Others think Satan is under every rock and behind every tree, and anything that happens that may be construed as remotely negative is, in fact, the devil's work in their lives. What's true, though, is that almost everyone has a view about Satan shaped and formed far more by the imaginations of mankind over the past 2,000 years than anything that's actually revealed about him in the pages of Scripture. And despite all the controversy, or perhaps even because of it, people have a lot of questions about Satan. Who is he? Where did he come from? Is Satan equal to God? Is he part of God's creation? Why would God create Satan? How much does Satan know, and how does he know it? What kinds of influence does Satan have on people, and how does he work? Does Satan have influence beyond people, corrupting systems and institutions? Well, if we're going to get any kind of answer, we do well to turn to the scriptures to explore what they have to say about Satan. And to do that, we need to begin with what God has made known to Israel in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, we get the word Satan, actually. The he word Satan is from Hebrew Satan, and it means adversary. And an adversary is an opponent. And the term is used for others beyond just the character that we know as Satan. In fact, in Numbers chapter 22, uh, we hear the story of Balaam. Balaam is famous because his donkey talked to him. Now, why did the donkey talk to him? Well, because the donkey realized that someone was standing in his way. And we're told who this is in verse 22. That God's, chapter 22 of Numbers, but God's anger was kindled because he went, because Balaam went, and the angel of Yahweh took his stand in the way as his Satan, or his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. So here is the angel of Yahweh who is serving as the Satan, as the adversary to Balaam and to his donkey. It's also used to describe human opponents in 2 Samuel 19.22, 1 Kings 5.4, and 1 Kings 11.14, 23 and 25, and also Psalm 109 and verse 6. Now the fact that we see here the Satan as the adversary has led some to suggest that Satan is not really a diabolical person, but either is uh, a spiritual being who just plays a role, or he repre it represents a title given to the one who plays a role. A Satan, or the Satan, or a Satan, or the Satan. While the popular character of, of Satan is indeed misguided, and therefore leading people to want to find reasons to reject it, to say the opposite, that there's uh, no personalization whatsoever, there is no person named Satan, is not respecting the evidence as we're going to see. 
that Satan has his role to play in the divine economy. I'm not talking about necessarily you know handing over money, but that original word of economy, which was the running of the household. That there's a place for uh, what Satan is doing in the work of God, as we're going to see, and uh, it's uniquely his. But we also need to remember that Satan, Satan, means adversary. And there might be times where God must send an angel to serve as a Satan, or, or an adversary against people. And of course, may that never be true about us. May we never need to have that kind of adversary in our lives. So now we do well to turn to the explicit references to Satan in the Old Testament. And we can find it in three places. In 1 Chronicles 21.1, Job 1 and 2, and Zechariah 3.1 and 2. The first one is in 1 Chronicles. This is time of David. And according to the chronicler, Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. And this is a census that will lead to some pretty uh, bad consequences. What's interesting about this is the chronicler. Uh, is been following the source that we call Second Samuel as well, and uh, the chronicler comes later, and we have the same story in Second Samuel chapter twenty-four. And in Second Samuel twenty-four, uh, the author Samuel says again, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, "Go number Israel and Judah." And so those are two very different origins of this difficulty. We can understand why it exists and what's going to happen here. Because Yahweh's anger is kindled, so he's going to have them number, and then yet Yahweh will then punish them for numbering them. And so uh, we can see that there's a way we can do that. Yahweh is giving space for Satan to tempt David. And so Satan is working actually according to God's purposes, although how much he knows he's working according to God's purposes is left unrevealed. Uh, but we see there that that influence uh, that, that is, is had uh, that David falls prey to. The longest and story regarding Satan in the Old Testament is found in the book of Job. Uh, Satan, we're told in chapter 1 and verse 6, that there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. So Satan here amongst the sons of God, who are understood to be the spiritual beings, probably angelic hosts. At that time, Yahweh says to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered Yahweh and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Um, so at this time, uh, Satan freely roams in heaven and on earth. And he stands for uh, God. And there's nothing strange about this. We're not given any indication. This is out of the usual, out of the ordinary. This is, this is just the way things happen. Uh, interestingly, there's more to this go up and down, to and fro. He's, he's, he's seeing who he can accuse. He's seeing uh, what's his, who's his, things of that nature. Because uh, because of this, Yahweh says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And there's a clear backstory about what Satan's doing on earth, although, again, it's left unrevealed. We can posit from other things, but we're not told explicitly. And what Satan will then say is, well, uh, does Job, Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and around his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out and his, your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face, he says. Uh, and God tells him, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. And Satan will go and strike all of his children dead, and all of his possessions are run off or killed or taken, and he's just left with his wife. And um, But we're told Job does not curse God in all of this. But we see here that Satan is able to do terrible things to people, but within constriction. He, does, he cannot go beyond 
what God has allowed him to do. In chapter 2, another day comes, and again, sons of God present themselves. Again, so does Satan. Same thing again. I've been going up and down the earth, walking to and fro on it. And Yahweh again says, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him and destroyed him without reason. But then Satan answered Yahweh and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And again Yahweh says, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Also worth noting here that uh, Yahweh says to Satan, you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Who in the end is the one who brought the calamity on? Job. And Satan was the one who went out from the presence of Yahweh. But all these things that happened to him happened. At least Yahweh's knowledge and permission. And so Satan again is trying this puffering out. Well, you know. He was wrong the first time. He's sure he's going to be right this time. Well, then we know Job was struck, but he does not curse God to his face. So Satan can cause great distress here, but it's within the bounds of God's will. Their relationship is adversarial to at least some degree. But Satan has a role that God countenances. Satan is allowed to stand there before Yahweh. And the final example is in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, toward the end of the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 3, uh, Zechariah seeing a vision of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And Yahweh said to Satan, The Lord Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And so, uh, Satan is portrayed in almost a courtroom scene as the adversary. He's, he's the prosecutor. He's, he's trying to give reasons why uh, Joshua, the high priest, should be indicted. Uh, but Yahweh here says, no, he's rebuked. Like, whatever you have to say, he is a, plucked, a chosen brand plucked out of the fire. He has his place in what I'm doing. He will stand before me. And uh, also, we're not given any reason to think this is unusual. Uh, Zechariah is able to see this scene. Now, with as popular as Satan is and all the conversations about him, you'd think there'd be more examples of him, but in the Old Testament, that's it. The only time he's explicitly mentioned. But there are some passages that people believe have reference to Satan. Uh, the first, of course, is the serpent in Genesis 3, 1-15. Uh, in that passage, a serpent questions Eve, casts aspersions about God's motivations from hindering Adam and Eve from eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to doubt God's goodness toward them. And, of course, we know Eve eats of the fruit... The serpent is cursed, even Adam are cursed, and that's why we're here where we are. Uh, Genesis 3.15 is one of the first messianic passages, expressing hope that whereas a serpent will attack man's heel, there will be a man who would come to strike the serpent's head. Now, as Christians, we identify the serpent with Satan because of what has been made known to John in Revelation 12, 9, and 22, where, in fact, uh, the ancient serpent, uh, Satan, is identified as the dragon. Um, and, and we're not disputing that identification, but that's in Revelation. That's in the New Testament. A student of the Old Testament might, by itself, might make some associations between serpent and this uh, Satan character, but it's not a guarantee by the Old Testament alone. And so what we uh, will say about the serpent of Satan is suited for the New Testament, where this is made known by explicit revelation. Another famous one is in Isaiah 14, uh, where Isaiah is talking about uh, an interesting character. Um, in Isaiah 14, he's talking about the son of the day star. Uh, this is known to some as Lucifer in Isaiah 14, 12 through 17. 
How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who lay the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world that desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch, clothed and slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land, you have slain your people. Actually, down to verse 20 there. And a lot of people see, well, Lucifer. Ah, and they think this is talking about Satan, the one who had presumed to overthrow God's rule to establish his own, but was failed, and he was cast down the pit. And yes, the details of that story are correct. Isaiah is taunting in a lament, or taunting lament, uh, to one who has presumed to elevate his throne above the stars, but was cast down to the pit. The son of the day, Star Lucifer, is being taunted here, but Satan, nor any other angelic being, is explicitly identified or spoken of in this passage. Contextually, back in verse 3, it says, When Yahweh has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Most likely Nebuchadnezzar, and that's if it's not in fact a code for the Assyrian king Sennacherib, based on Isaiah 14.4 Isaiah 14, there. It's possible Isaiah is taunting Nebuchadnezzar in terms of what Satan had done long before, but that's not a conclusion that you can come to from this text alone. And this text has a lot of indications that, in fact, it's really Nebuchadnezzar, because the land had rest after his ravagings. Uh, is this the man who made the earth tremble, shook kingdoms in verse 16? Uh, All the kings lay in glory, but you are cast out, verses 18 19. This is not the same character as Satan. And so it's not wise to speculate as if Satan were the Lucifer of Isaiah 14, 12-17 from Daniel 4 and other places. We get the idea that Nebuchadnezzar presumed highly and was very arrogant. And Yahweh was right to cut him down because of that arrogance. Another passage that is often associated with um, Satan is in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11-19. through 19. Where the prophet Ezekiel uh, is speaking, he's there's actually condemnation of Tyre going on here, uh, the great merchant city. And beginning in verse 11, Moreover the word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, God, Lord Yahweh, excuse me, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were an eat in the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with the violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctity.
sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst, and it consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. And uh, it's a strange lament. I mean, you were in Eden, Garden of God, every person was your covering. Blameless, so corrupted by trade. Oh, guardian cherub. I mean, all that stuff. Hey, this is some kind of spiritual being. Hey, this is uh, actually a reference to Satan and his fall. Well, hold on. We can see why somebody would go there, but we have reason to be skeptical. We come toward the end of it. We're very much brought to the situation of Tyre. Very much about the consumption of a town. And so it makes more contextual sense, excuse me, to suggest that Yahweh is speaking of Tyre in terms of Eden. Perhaps because it looked like an opulent garden with all of its wealth. And that it persisted for some time, sustained by God, because they had an alliance with Israel. But they were eventually corrupted by their trade and greed. And so because it's so highly poetic, and Ezekiel could just be talking about Tyre in terms of something hyper hyperbolically suggesting it, it goes back to Eden, because it's this beautiful garden area, uh, explains what's going on there a lot better than positing and bringing in another character that the text does not mention or has anything to do with whatsoever. So that's why it's also not wise to speculate about the nature of Satan based on this lament over the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28, 11-19. So yes, Satan is associated with the serpent in the Garden of Eden, but that's only made clear in the New Testament. Discussions of Lucifer and the king of Tyre are not directly associated with Satan anyway. We should be careful about using them, and when you get rid of that, a lot of the origin stories of Satan show themselves to have no bearing, at least in the New Testament. Uh, they may have some, you know, substantive reality, but they're not revealed in Scripture. And so the, the Scripture leaves it open as to exactly where Satan came from. Does not really explain his origins, does not explain wh why his creator, how, or what's going on. Uh, nothing explicit in that way. So this is what we see about Satan in the Old Testament. What do we say about it? What, what are we supposed to understand from this? We do see some indication of Satan as the tempter, as a source of all sorts of distress and pain, as we can see in the stories of David and Job. But the primary way that the Old Testament is viewing Satan is according to his name, the idea there of the adversary, the opponent. We might put it in terms of the prosecutor. He is the one who makes the indictment or the accusation of wrongdoing before God. Now this may seem strange to us at first because we tend to see Satan as nothing but malevolent and sure, he was not playing the prosecutor for uh, altruistic reasons. But it does make some sense because Satan is the opponent, the adversary of humanity. He tempts humanity into doing things that are less than ideal. And so is it really that hard to imagine that Satan would be the one that would make the accusation of wrongdoing against a person before God to secure that person's indictment and condemnation? And throughout the Old Testament, God gives Satan that place and allows him to stand as the adversary, the opponent, the prosecutor. Satan is able to make accusation before God, and God hears it. Yahweh may grant Satan to tempt people on, into evil on account of his own anger against his people, as he did with David. Yahweh may allow Satan to do mischief against his servants, as he did with Job. Yet Yahweh will also shut down Satan's accusations when he has a greater purpose, like he did with Joshua the high priest, as Zechariah saw. But in all of this, Yahweh has a place in the divine economy. He is the adversary. He is the opponent. And if he had his way, yet he would have Yahweh condemn all humanity because of their transgressions. Now, this 
aspect of Satan's role is not emphasized as strongly in most of the New Testament, because what we see in Revelation 12, 7 through 12, which evokes Luke 10, 18, that Satan, as the accuser of our brothers, what lost the war in heaven, was cast down to earth, and was not given space to accuse the brethren again. That when Jesus died and was raised again in power, there was no more need for the adversary to stand against the people before God. That the covenant people of God would now have standing because of the blood of Christ granting that access in Ephesians 2.18. And because of that, there will be no basis of accusation against it by Satan. What can Satan argue against the blood of the Lamb? And that those who would be condemned are not going to be condemned because Satan accused them, but because they were judged by the word of God in Christ. Jesus would be that judge, not Satan. John 12, 48, and Acts 17, 30, and 31. And yet we do well to consider the role of Satan as our adversary, as the prosecutor, and see how he may still work among mankind in similar ways. After all, what would have been Satan's accusation against an Israelite before Yahweh? He would have pointed out the Israelites' sins and failings. He'd want Yahweh to condemn that Israelite for their sins. And, let's be honest, Israel certainly gave the adversary enough evidence with which to operate. And so Satan proves to be a prosecutor, and a very zealous one at that. Now let's think about a modern analog. What about a modern prosecutor, especially one who is overly zealous for justice? What would happen to such a person? Well, it would be very easy for them to fix it on the law to precise detail. They might start relishing opportunity to indict anyone who does not measure up to the standard of the law. They would want prosecution without mercy. After, after all, to the person who is a prosecutor, the people on trial are transgressors and criminals, and they should be treated sharply and harshly, because they have broken the law. Now, is this how we want to be treated? Is this how we want God to treat us? Now, I say this because we're very well acquainted with Satan as a tempter toward moral laxity, toward lasciviousness and profligacy, Right? We see Satan at work in temptations to lust, temptations to for greed, temptations for maybe even anger. But do we also see Satan behind the temptation toward legalism? To emphasize justice against compassion and mercy. And to insist on rules more than people. And that's how Satan can be the merciless prosecutor. Okay, Yahweh, you established the law. You made this people they have transgressed, therefore you need to condemn them. And at times Yahweh consents to the indictment. At times Yahweh relents and elects to show grace and mercy to his people. We can only imagine how this would have made Satan feel. It's like watching a zealous prosecutor watching a judge show mercy to a person convicted of a crime. Now, to be clear, again, Satan has been cast down from heaven. He is not in a position anymore to accuse us. But on earth he is perfectly positioned to induce us to accuse each other. On two occasions in the New Testament, we see a warning. In Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12, the Apostle Paul has the following to say. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, as it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So that each of us will give an account of himself to God. And in James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, as a second witness, James 
testifies similarly. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? We need to remember that, yes, publicans and sinners who did not repent were caught in Satan's snares and would be condemned. But the Pharisees found themselves in the exact same position, didn't they? How will you escape the sentence of hell? Jesus asked them in Matthew 23. After all, what is God after? In John 17, 23 Jesus prays that we all might be one as God is one within himself, and that we may be one with God as God is one within himself. He's after relational unity between God and man and between man and each other. To accomplish this, God has demonstrated love, grace, and mercy in Christ while upholding justice. Jesus died for our sins to, to pay the penalty, but in doing that, he has extended to us love, grace, and mercy that we do not receive as we deserve. In Romans 5, 6, through 11. And in fact, as James says in chapter 2, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy in verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So any effort that leads to alienation among people because of excessive legalism and judgmentalism is as much the work of Satan as alienation among people because of other sins in the flesh. And that is why, no doubt, in Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21, Paul will list works of the flesh, and many of them we would recognize as easy temptations from Satan. Uh, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, envy, drunkenness, orgies, right? But also in there, strife, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. All of those are are divisions in relationship, many of which happen because somebody is being excessively legalistic, excessively sanctimonious. And that is wrong. Christians are to be diligent to present themselves as approved, without needing to be ashamed, rightly handle the word of God in 2 Timothy 2.15. No arguments. But they're equally to be as diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Same word in both passages, and that's in Ephesians 4.3. How can we be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the body of peace? Showing humility, grace, and mercy. As we see in the rest of Ephesians 4, as we see in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, it's not going to be through zealous prosecution. Yes, in Ephesians 5, 1 through 13, we are to expose the works of darkness, the works of sin in Ephesians 5, 1 through 13. Yes, absolutely. Sin needs to be exposed for what it is. But the good news of Christ must come to the unrepentant and love, grace, and mercy to be displayed toward the penitent. And part, by the way, of uncovering the works of darkness is to see how people have been uh, taken captive by the devil because of asceticism, because of excessive moral rigor, because of sanctimoniousness, and because thinking their holiness means they're better than other people. That is as much a work of darkness as people out there uh, flagrantly uh, living in sin. Because if we privilege rules over people, if we seek to reason to justify ourselves against each other, and we always presume ourselves in the right while all others are in the wrong, are we the people of God, or are we the accusers of mankind? Have we become the adversary, the Satan, and not the means by which they come to know Jesus? Who are we really serving here? Whose child are we proving to be in the way that we relate to other people? 
If our emphasis on holiness leads to exclude those whom Jesus welcomed to him, are we the people of Jesus? Or are we doing the devil's bidding? Oh, we see Satan's hand in those who would take away from what God has declared to be right and good, right? We see people who are trying to omit certain inconvenient truths, and that's the Satan's work. But do we see Satan's hand in those who are willing to add additional burdens God did not impose on mankind and to make them doctrines? Because Satan is just as active there. If we can see Satan quite clearly in the temptation toward lust and licentiousness, can we learn to see Satan just as clearly in the temptation toward excessive fastidiousness and all forms of asceticism? As Christians, there's no safety running from Satan. You can't run from one issue to the other and think you're safe from Satan, because Satan is waiting there for you there. He's just as ready to tempt you by moral restriction as by moral laxity, to become the adversary and the accuser of others, rather than to bear the hopeful good news of Jesus to the world. I hope that we've been able to begin to get a better understanding of who Satan is, based on what we have seen of him in the Old Testament. We're not told as much as we might imagine. And, in fact, the Old Testament tells us less about Satan than we've really been led to believe by a lot of people. We have seen him in the Old Testament primarily as the adversary the one who would prosecute humanity before God. Now in Christ, Satan's role as accuser is made void. Christians should therefore be very wary of taking up his mantle by his temptation and become the adversary and accuser of mankind and their fellow brethren. And therefore may we resist Satan and his temptations so that we can draw near to God in Christ and through him obtain the resurrection of life. We're again so glad that you've joined us. We hope that you've been benefited by our conversation here on a topic of interest to a lot of people if, if you've been benefited by it, we encourage you please share it with friends family and others on social media if we can be of service you'd like to talk more about these things you'd like to have a prayer request uh, for something in your life you'd like to know more about serving jesus uh just need a chat you'd like to find out more about how to visit with us please find us online at venicechurchofchrist.org we're also on social media and if i can be of any service personally you can reach out to me on my website deverbovitae.com that's www.deverbovitae.com Again, thank you. Have a great day.